Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky makes an emotionally charged address to the UN Security Council and demands the Council hold Russia accountable for invading Ukraine. He says Russia should be removed as a permanent member of the Security Council. Today is Tuesday, April 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, why divesting pension funds from Russia is easier said than done. In the midst of war, school teachers in Ukraine continue to conduct daily lessons, both in person and online, for the millions of students who are now in other countries. Even if I'm not teaching like the full curriculum, it's good that they're talking to me, they're talking to each other. And author Douglas Stewart talks about his latest book, Young Mungo, that centers on a romance between two teenage boys, one Protestant and one Catholic. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, is imploring the United Nations Security Council to act much more forcefully against Russia, especially in light of yet more graphic images of atrocities in Bucha. And what he fears is happening now to civilians in Ukrainian cities Russian forces are still occupying. He's here speaking through an interpreter. The world can see that the Russian, what Russian military did in Bucha while keeping the city under their occupation. But the world has yet to see what they have done in other occupied cities and regions of our country. Zelensky says the Security Council needs to eject Russia as a veto-wielding member. Zelensky told other world leaders today that if they collectively fail to protect his or any country's right to exist, they fail the U.N.'s very reason for existing. NPR's Yulian Haidai is in Lviv, Ukraine, with an update on what's happening in two northern regions. Officials in the Suma and Chernihiv regions say that their areas are almost free of Russian forces. Ukraine's northern military command is working to rebuild damaged roads and bridges across the densely forested region. That way, they can facilitate humanitarian convoys, evacuations, and get investigators in to look at possible war crimes that may have taken place amid the Russian retreat. Officials say it could take up to three months to have all of the transit infrastructure in place for people to return. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. Fears are mounting about what Ukrainian forces are likely to find in Mariupol, a city where it's estimated thousands of people have been trapped under bombardment without enough food, water, or other life-saving supplies. Separately, the medical charity group Doctors Without Borders says in a statement that its team witnessed Russian strikes yesterday in Mykolaiv. It did not say how it knew the explosions were caused by Russian forces. NPR has not been able to independently verify the claim. President Biden welcomed a very special guest to the White House today. His old boss, former President Barack Obama. The two were celebrating the success of the Affordable Care Act. Here's NPR's Mara Lyson. The Affordable Care Act has had many names, Biden said, turning to Obama. But Obamacare is the most fitting. When you sign the Affordable Care Act in the law, it became the most consequential piece of health insurance, the most consequential piece of legislation, in my view since the creation of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. The law, which slashed the number of uninsured Americans, has also become more popular with each passing year. President Biden says he wants to continue to improve the law, and at the event, he signed an executive order fixing a glitch in the law and expanding subsidies for family coverage. Mara Liason, NPR News, The White House. The Dow closes down 280 points, ending the day at 34,641. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts prosecutors have dropped decades-old arson charges against a New York man, in part because at least one juror made anti-Semitic remarks about him. Berkshire County DA Andrea Harrington said today the case against Barry Jacobson is over. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Jacobson was sentenced to six months in prison and had to pay a $10,000 fine after his 1983 conviction for setting a fire at his family's vacation home in the Berkshires. D.A. Harrington says after his release, it was learned that at least one juror made anti-Semitic remarks during deliberations. As a prosecutor, I have a legal, ethical, and moral obligation to ensure that jury verdicts are rendered free from bias. There were also questions about the forensic evidence against him. Jacobson lost his commercial real estate license after his conviction. He tried to get a pardon, but that would have required him to admit to the crime. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Funeral services for Marine Captain Ross Reynolds were held this morning at St. Cecilia's Church in Lemonster. Captain Reynolds and three other Marines were killed last month when their aircraft crashed during a NATO training exercise in Norway. Reynolds was buried with full military honors at the State Veterans Cemetery in Winchenden. Endicott College in Beverly is collaborating with two nearby hospitals to create an educational pipeline for new nurses. The agreement is with Beverly Hospital and Addison Gilbert Hospital in Gloucester. The partnership will create new internship and training opportunities for students. And federal regulators have reissued a request for boaters to slow down off the Massachusetts coastline to protect right whales. Researchers spotted some of the endangered whales east of Boston yesterday, so the government has declared a slow zone in that area through the 19th of April. The previous warning for those waters expired last Saturday. The whales can be hurt or even killed by boat strikes. In sports in the bottom of the seventh inning in Florida, the Sox are topping the Twins 10-6 to in the final game of preseason play. And in the forecast, lovely sunshine out there right now. Enjoy it because we may not see it for a couple days. Look for clouds tonight, showers, temperatures in the low 40s. Then for tomorrow, lots of rain, light winds, a little bit under 50 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow, riding the train east into Kyiv here in Ukraine. And it's fair to say this train is pretty crowded. We've been walking through the compartments. They're full. They're full of families, people with suitcases, people bringing pets with them. This is the opposite of what we saw in the early days of the war when people were fleeing Kyiv on trains like this. Right now, here in this moment, it seems like people are coming back to Kyiv. At the train station in central Kyiv, there are armed police checking documents and passports. They're verifying identities and looking for weapons before letting passengers into the station. While we're waiting, we talk to some of our fellow passengers. Some are fleeing from places like Mariupol, but most are returning to a newly liberated Kyiv. 53-year-old Maria Kuschuk is dragging a small suitcase behind her. She's coming back to Kyiv after initially fleeing to a nearby city. She left her kids there, but she wanted to come back to be in the city to help the economy here. She says she missed Kyiv a lot. And right now, the threat from Russia as troops have fully left the area seems to have gone away. Standing nearby, another woman, Svetlana Blavatna, is bundled up in a coat with a scarf wrapped around her head. 
Through our interpreter, she tells us she's coming back from Chernobyl in the West, but she's worried about the Russians coming back. I'm still afraid that they can come back, they can do this, they can retaliate again, they can do a second wave, and I know there is a risk. 35-year-old Petro Mazuk holds his passport in his hand, ready to pass through the ID check. His hoodie is up, and he looks a little dazed. He says he stayed in Kyiv for a few weeks during the war. But then at some point it became really, really, really like terrifying. I decided to go to see my parents, and now I'm coming back here. We mentioned we're surprised to see the train so full today. He says, yeah, he's surprised too. I'm thinking the city is getting back to life slowly but firmly, so that's what I want to take part of it. Then we ask about the one thing that seems to be on everyone's mind here right now, the gruesome discoveries in recent days in the suburbs of Kyiv less than 20 miles away. His eyes tear up. He looks away. He says reading that news was the hardest day of his life. That grim reality of what has happened in Kiev's suburbs, particularly in Bucha, weighs heavily on the city just as it weighs heavily on people around the world. NPR's Nathan Rott was in Bucha today, and he joins us now to tell us what he saw We should warn listeners, a lot of what we are about to discuss will be very disturbing. Hey, Nate. Hey, Scott. And Nate, remind us why just about every Western leader is talking so much about Bucha this week. Yeah, so Bucha is this place that was recently left by Russian forces, and it's a place that, you know, some of the most horrifying accounts of the war are coming from. Uh, Dead civilians lining streets next to bikes or with spilled groceries. Uh, Deceased men who appear to have their hands tied. It's those images that are raising the most serious questions about war crimes to this point in the conflict, and it's those images that are causing the United Nations Security Council to meet today. You were there today. Tell us what you saw. Yeah, so I went on a press tour arranged by Ukrainian officials. It was a very large group of journalists, well over 100, who were all being escorted by police into this area that's still being swept from mines. Uh, One of the places we stopped is one that you've probably seen if you've been looking at the images from Bucha. It's a narrow residential street that's clogged with destroyed and burnt military vehicles. The street is littered with bullet casings, torn camouflage jackets, and craters from artillery rounds. In places there's so much ash on the ground, it actually feels like you're walking on black sand. A small dark dog barks beside its owner, his home destroyed. All of the homes on this street have been damaged. Voldemort Abramov's is one of the worst. A fire broke out? Yeah, it. I started... Uh, Extinguished the fire. I tried to. You can see it right there. Our translator, Luca, points to a burnt fire extinguisher as we walk through the rubble, making our way to the back of what's left of Abramov's house. He says Russian troops threw a grenade in his window the first night they came and yelled to come out of the house. They said, hands, show your hands. So he, his daughter, and her husband walked out, hands in the air. The Russians started asking, who are you? Where are the Nazis? And he said, there are no Nazis here. The Russian troops took Oleg, Abramov's son-in-law, to the road, he says. And they shot him in the head. He says he took his daughter as bullets were flying. They went to a neighbor's house and hid there. 
They'd stay there for the next month, wearing the same clothes Abramov was wearing as we talked to him. His son-in-law's body laid there, he says, the entire time. I don't know how I held on, he says. The explosions, living in a basement. I was ready, he says, to walk out and just get killed. Abramov is one of many residents in Bucha trying to figure out what to do next. Officials are telling residents not to return. The area is still not safe. Police and military are sweeping neighborhoods block by block looking for mines, unexploded ordnance, and bodies. And sadly, they're finding all of the above. At a rural subdivision in Bucha near a brightly colored playground, Ukrainian police gather journalists in front of a house. They're moving badly burned bodies into bags. <clears throat> Six bodies were found here the night before, says police spokesman Dmitro Andreev. Four women, two men. Here's Andreev's translator. They was uh, shot by, uh, by, by gunfires, and then uh, somebody trying to hide this crime and to, to burn these this bodies. Ukraine's prosecutor general is examining the bodies that are being discovered here, looking for evidence of possible war crimes in Bucha, and we should be clear, Nate, that what we've just heard are allegations of war crimes, but they're allegations that have not yet been fully investigated. That's right. The only investigation that's going on right now, to our knowledge, is by Ukrainian authorities and journalists, and they fully intend to figure out just exactly what happened in some of these areas. Nate Rott from NPR, thank you for reporting on such a difficult story. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I appreciate you. On the final day of their session, Georgia Republicans muscled through a bill paving the way for restrictions on transgender kids playing school sports. Lawmakers passed a slew of conservative education priorities this year, but Georgia voters have been pushing in the other direction, voting for Joe Biden in 2020. WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass tells us how this flurry of education bills may animate this year's midterms. For most of the day, legislation on trans kids in sports appeared to be dead. Then, just after midnight and the urging of Georgia's governor, Republican lawmakers shoved the provision into another bill. Isn't it true, for, Mr. For what purpose does the senator from the 40th rise? Parliamentary inquiry. State your inquiry. Isn't it true that the anti-trans bill is attached to this bill that we have not had the favor of being I'm able to I'm certain each and every member is capable of making that decision. It passed without debate. Democrats like Senator Sally Harrell were stunned. I don't think you want to hear the words that I'm feeling right now. She has a trans child. And I'm going to have to tell my child that that's how our government works. This session, Georgia lawmakers passed strict limits on how teachers talk about race, a bill that makes it easier for parents to complain about books in school libraries and a parent's bill of rights. Georgia's electorate may have become more diverse, but Republicans have reason to think their education bills will resonate, especially in the hotly contested campaign for governor. In the governor's race in Virginia last year, Republican Glenn Youngkin campaigned on unmasking kids and banning critical 
political race theory. He won and became Virginia's first GOP governor in eight years. If you don't hear that message loud and clear, Democrat or Republican, then you're missing the boat. Chuck Clay, a Republican lobbyist in Georgia, says Republicans looked at Virginia and saw that talking about education helped them walk a fine line, pleasing the party's base and appealing to swing voters. Now, recent Democratic polling suggests older voters, not parents, may have been the real swing voters in Virginia. Still, an internal Democratic Governors Association report cited education as the top issue motivating voters who went for Biden in 2020 and Republican Glenn Youngkin a year later. Education issues are going to be a big factor in whether we see a red wave in 22 in Georgia or a continued blue wave. Georgia Republican Senator Clint Dixon says he was listening to his constituents when he wrote a bill allowing parents to opt their kids out of school mask mandates. I tell some of my Senate colleagues their primary issue is election integrity. In Gwinnett, it's education. I've got parents that voted for my opponent last time that plan on voting for me now because I've taken up these issues that they care about. There's also the risk that Republicans go too far. Even conservative governors in Utah and Indiana vetoed bills restricting trans kids from playing school sports. Karen Watkins, a Democrat on the Gwinnett County School Board in Georgia, says these Republican bills purposefully lean into wedge issues like race and gender. I can't see anything in any of these bills built on fear that would actually help the children. When Watkins won her seat in 2020, she was among the first black women to sit on the board. Watkins says these divisive bills and the politics around them just ratchet up the temperature. It's just troubling to me because education should be the thing that brings us together, not divides us. Because that's one thing we all have in common. It's the center of our community. Watkins says that quality has eroded and she's worried it could soon be too late to restore it. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, what's happening to government-funded COVID testing, treatment, and vaccines. In business, Cambridge-based Moderna is reporting a drop in international demand for its COVID-19 vaccine. The biotech company says the African Union and World Health Organization vaccination program have declined options to buy nearly 400 million doses. Industry experts say earlier in the pandemic, there was pressure on vaccine makers to get shots to all areas of the globe. But now supply is outpacing efforts to get vaccines into arms, even though large percentages of people worldwide remain unvaccinated. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fly Homes, empowering homeowners to put the proceeds from the sale of their current home toward the down payment on their next one before selling. Learn more at flyhomes.com. And the Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. bostonpops.org. Stocks headed south today. The Dow fell more than three-quarters of a percent, 281 points, to close at 34,641. S&P dropped one and a quarter percent to finish the day at 4525. Nasdaq sank two and a quarter percent to finally settle at 14,204. Details on Marketplace at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. 
In the ninth inning now in Florida, Red Sox are still beating the Twins 10-6. to It's the final game of preseason play. Clouds and showers tonight, temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow, look for lots of rain. Highs just about 49 degrees. Democrats have been losing support from working-class voters. We've let some of its politics get too divisive. We need to come back in the middle. But the power of unions may be able to revive it. While membership is tied for an all-time low, approval for unions is at its highest in 57 years. How this could be a deciding factor in upcoming elections tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Congress is considering a $10 billion package to help fund the fight against COVID, and we're already getting an idea of what's at stake for Massachusetts and for the country. Last month, the federal government started running out of money for its COVID response. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel is here to walk us through what another injection of cash would mean. Hi, Gabriella. Hi there. So until last week, the federal government helped ensure that there was free testing for COVID, free treatment, and free vaccines. That is not the case right now. What happened? Well, in early March, Democrats nixed COVID funding from a much bigger spending bill, and that forced the Biden administration to announce a whole range of cuts. For example, in the past, you could walk into a pharmacy and get a COVID vaccine without insurance. The federal government would pick up the tab. Right now, you have to find a state-sponsored site in Massachusetts for a free vaccine. COVID treatments are another example. The federal government stopped paying for monoclonal antibody infusions to be administered. So right now, patients are having to decide whether they want it, sometimes without knowing how much it might cost them. If Congress passes new COVID funding, would that help patients uh, get treatments like monoclonal antibodies uh, at no cost and boosters and vaccines as well? So that's what many public health experts hope happens. But we're talking about Congress here. So these things can change up until it's actually signed. And the current situation where there aren't enough funds shows what's at stake. Scott Dryden-Peterson oversees outpatient COVID treatment for the Mass General Brigham Hospital System. He says as people resume their pre-pandemic lives and drop many restrictions and precautions, it's important for society and our government to provide for those at most risk. Staying open will mean more people get COVID, and we need to be able to respond to take care of those who are vulnerable for getting severely ill. And the lack of support to be able to provide care for them is a major challenge of that strategy. Uh, Gabriella, what about COVID testing? 
Well, we have seen a major shift in the testing strategy. Now there is more of a focus on at-home rapid tests. Massachusetts shut down 30 free testing sites just last week. 11 remain open. This worries Dryden-Peterson partly because it's hard to stand up sites again if they are needed. And there has been a small but a real uptick in positive cases in just the last couple of weeks. But a state official tells me that there are no plans to reopen shuttered sites. And what about tracking the virus and any new variants? Are we still able to do that? Well, with or without new federal funding, there are big changes in this area. As people move towards those rapid tests, and as we said, free testing sites are closing, this is a big loss of information about where the virus is spreading. This is a concern according to several different experts I've spoken to. But at the very same time, the federal government has drastically reduced its investment in genomic sequencing, which is how scientists identify and track variants of concern. I spoke with Bronwyn McGinnis at the Broad Institute, which does the bulk of sequencing here in Massachusetts. She says federal funds now cover only about 120 samples in the state each week. That's down from about 5,000. McGinnis says this makes for a very low resolution picture of what's happening. Hopefully, we're, you know, we'll move towards a world where where that gives us enough information, but uh, we're not there yet. And, and certainly, you know, not clear what's to come and whether that will be sufficient data for us to really uh, have a good sense of what's going on. She says the Broad Institute is paying for additional sequencing right now and working with Massachusetts to figure out what comes next. Her bigger concern is whether other places can identify variants early so we are not caught unprepared. Gabriella, are there other concerns you're hearing from the Massachusetts scientific community? Well, I spoke with Ofer Levy, who heads the Precision Vaccine Program at Boston Children's Hospital. He says there was a big investment in vaccine development under the Trump administration, and researchers like his team are still trying to develop new COVID vaccines that are cheaper and easier to store. And now that funding is uncertain. If that whole huge amount of money just completely dissipates and we say, mission accomplished, we're done here, Uh, We're in for a rude awakening in the years ahead. In the $10 billion deal that Senator struck yesterday, there is money for vaccine research. So a lot depends on what happens in Congress. And we know you'll be keeping an eye on it for us. Thank you very much, WBR's Gabriella Emanuel. Thanks. Thanks. Last week, Radio Diaries brought us the story of Sophia Brettel. Every day, I wake up, reach to my phone, and that split second before I look at my phone, I have a fear of not seeing a message from my mom. Sophia was born and raised in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, about 25 miles from the Russian border. Her mother still lived there. And I kept asking her, would you be willing to evacuate? There are trains. I find someone for you to give you a ride or would you go? And my mom told me right away that she's not going to leave because she doesn't want to leave her aunt. Sophia's aunt, Vanya, suffered an accident when she was 10 and became mentally disabled. Recently, she also became physically disabled. After Sophia's grandmother died, Sophia's mother became Vanya's caretaker. My aunt, she was barely walking and she's helpless. She doesn't even understand that there's a war going on. 
This is where things got really difficult for Sofia. As the city became a frequent target of Russian bombing, Sofia got a call from a friend of her mother in Ukraine. And she said, listen, you need to convince your mom to leave because it's really dangerous here. And she doesn't want to go because of the aunt. So I called my mom and I said, like, you, you need to make a decision. I want you to leave because I want to have a mother. I said, I am sorry to put it this way, but this is me or the aunt. Sophia's mother finally left Ukraine last week and met Sophia in Israel. Aunt Vanya was evacuated from her apartment to a care facility in Kharkiv. I know that there's a lot of guilt and shame because of her aunt. I do not know if she will ever forgive herself, but this is the decisions that war puts people in front of. After we aired Sophia's story, we learned the sad news that Vanya Guseva died at her care facility this past weekend. She was 92 years old. You can hear the rest of Sophia's story on the Radio Diaries podcast. And for the latest on what's happening in in Ukraine, wake up with Morning Edition tomorrow. Listen live on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking the forecast, today may be it for the sunshine for a while. Clouds turn in tonight to look for overcast skies, maybe some showers. Temperatures about 43. For tomorrow, could just reach the upper 40s with plenty of rain. Then Thursday could bring in more clouds, maybe more showers, strong winds, about 25 miles an hour at times. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Jose Mateo Ballet Theater, presenting Dance Saturdays. Experience Scottish dance and music in Going to the Highlands, Saturday at 7, BalletTheater.org. America doesn't have enough teachers. On and off, teacher shortages go back in the United States at least 100 years. And uh, one of our biggest problems is keeping people. Nine of ten teachers hired each year are hired to replace somebody who left the year before. The Biden administration is calling for states to spend more and recruit more. Will it work? That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Two of the European Union's top leaders will travel to Kyiv this week ahead of an international fundraising event for Ukraine. The event takes place Saturday. Terry Schultz reports a trip comes as the U.S. and EU seek to punish Moscow with more sanctions. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Foreign Policy Chief Josep Borrell will meet Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv this week amid outrage over the killing of civilians in areas around the capital, which have been liberated 
liberated from Russian troops. The atrocities have prompted the EU Commission to propose a fifth round of sanctions against Moscow, which now await approval from the 27 member governments. The U.S. and the EU are coordinating on the new round of sanctions. They are expected to be announced tomorrow and include a ban on all new investments in Russia and toughened sanctions on Russian financial institutions and government-owned businesses. A founder of the far-right Proud Boys group has pleaded not guilty to conspiracy and obstruction charges stemming from last year's January 6th attack on the Capitol. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Enrique Tario remains in federal custody. The Justice Department accuses Enrique Tario of helping to plan efforts to disrupt the certification of Joe Biden's presidential win and encouraging members of the Proud Boys who took violent action that day. Tario has been added to a bigger conspiracy case against several other members of the far-right group. Judge Timothy Kelly is struggling to find a date for the trial to begin given a backlog in the courts and the number of defendants in the case. Authorities estimate the trial could last at least six weeks. Lawyers for some of the Proud Boys are protesting the long pretrial detentions. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Michigan Republican Congressman Fred Upton says he will not seek re-election. He made the announcement today, making him the fourth House Republican who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump over the Capitol attack to announce his retirement from Congress. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The COVID-19 Omicron subvariant BA2 now makes up the vast majority of new cases in New England. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is estimating it accounts for more than 84 percent of new cases. Counties in Massachusetts are seeing a slight upward trend in the amount of virus detected in wastewater. The COVID tracking firm BioBot Analytics shows 65 percent of the viruses found in Middlesex County are the BA2 variant, with more than 57 percent in Suffolk County. About $500 million coming to Massachusetts from a major opioid settlement will be split between the state's treatment efforts and local cities and towns. Drug manufacturer Johnson & Johnson and three distributors are paying the money to settle allegations they helped fuel the addiction crisis. Attorney General Maura Healy said today the funding will go toward treatment and services for people struggling with substance use disorder. Working to expand harm reduction services, increase supportive housing, increase access to methadone, and funding outreach teams to provide services in home and community settings. The funding will start coming to the state this spring. After that, an annual payment will be made to Massachusetts over the next 18 years. State police say a Dorchester man will face assault, motor vehicle, and narcotics charges in connection with the police pursuit that ended at the Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett. Authorities say a trooper was checking on why 40-year-old Dennis Penny was standing outside his car on a road in Revere this morning. Officers say Penny fled and led police on a chase through Revere and Everett, hitting several police cruisers and people's cars. Penny was taken into custody and brought to the hospital for evaluation. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. And the Alzheimer's Association, helping those living with Alzheimer's or dementia and their caregivers. 24-7 helpline at 800-272-3900. 55 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds and showers coming in overnight tonight. Temperatures in the low 40s. Look for a much greater chance of rain tomorrow. Light winds, a little bit under 50 degrees. This is WBUR in Boston.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Kiev, Ukraine. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky made an impassioned appeal to the United Nations Security Council today, asking it to take action now to stop the war in Ukraine. He described in graphic detail the images that have emerged from the suburbs of Kyiv in recent days and accused Russian troops of committing atrocities, quote, just for their pleasure. For more, we turn now to NPR's international affairs correspondent, Jackie Northam. Hey, Jackie. Hi, Scott. So what struck you about President Zelensky's address to the Security Council? Uh, it was very emotional. Zelensky was in Bucha and some of the other suburbs yesterday, and he shared with the Security Council what he witnessed. And just a warning, you know, this kind of violence is hard to hear about, but uh, he talked about entire families being killed and mass graves and, you know, the bodies of unarmed civilians, their hands bound behind their backs on the streets of Bucha. And he played a video showing these things. You know, it was short, about a minute long, but very powerful. Um, and, you know, Zelensky accused Russia's military of committing atrocities. And he said the devastation by the Russian military went far beyond just killing civilians. And here he is, he's speaking through a translator. They are deliberately blocking city, creating mass starvation. They deliberately shoot columns of civilians on the road trying to escape from the territory of hostilities. They even deliberately blow up shelters where civilians hide from airstrikes. And Scott Zelensky almost scolded the Security Council, saying it was not mm. doing nearly enough to stop the war. And he questioned its effectiveness if it can't find a way to hold Russia accountable. Yeah, this idea of somehow holding Russia accountable for war crimes is something that the Biden administration has been pushing for lately. Did we hear more about that from the Security Council today? Oh, sure. There were calls from several countries that Russia should be investigated for war crimes. And the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she also reiterated uh, earlier calls that Russia should be kicked off the U.N. Human Rights Council, that it should not be part of an entity, you know, that's set up to promote respect for human rights. And here she is speaking. Not only is this the height of hypocrisy, it is dangerous. Russia is using its membership on the Human Rights Council as a platform for propaganda to suggest Russia has a legitimate concern for human rights. But, you know, the UN is incredibly bureaucratic and there's mm -hmm. no sign so far of Russia getting kicked off the Human Rights Council. And Russia is, of course, a permanent member of the Security Council. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how did Russia's ambassador to the UN respond to Zelensky's address? Well, the Russian ambassador, uh, Vasily Nebenza, he disputed Zelensky's claims. He said not one civilian was hurt or killed while the Russian military controlled Bucha and that the video Zelensky showed had been adulterated, that, you know, the bodies uh, that were shown were killed actually by Ukrainians and not Russians. And here he's, he is speaking now. I understand that 
you saw corpses and heard testimonials, but you only saw what they showed you. You couldn't ignore the flagrant inconsistencies in the version of events which are being promoted by Ukrainian and Western media. And, you know, Scott Nabenza had said yesterday that he would produce empirical evidence to the Security Council that Russian forces had not been killing civilians in Ukraine. But, you know, he didn't present any of that evidence today. In the time we've got left, anything new on more sanctions from Western countries directed to Russia? Yes, the U.S., European Union allies are continuing to tighten the screws. The U.S. is now prohibiting Russia from withdrawing funds from American banks to pay its debt obligations, maybe pushing Russia closer to default. And there are more sanctions, you know, in the works as well against Russian individuals and companies. So there, there's still a lot uh, going on as far as sanctions are concerned. That's NPR's Jackie Northam. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Six weeks into the war in Ukraine, more than half the country's children have been pushed from their homes. It is one of the biggest and fastest disruptions of children's lives since World War II. Safety and food are their top priorities, but as NPR's Anya Kamenitz reports, a surprising number are also keeping up with school. It's Tuesday morning, and Hannah Kudrinova's fifth grade English class is signing on to Google Meet. Hello. Hello. Kudrinova starts like a lot of teachers everywhere with a check-in. Uh, for the start, uh, you can show me your mood. How are you she asks the students today? to show a thumbs up Remember? if they're happy, so thumbs down nice. if they're sad, and sideways if they're feeling so-so. Maxim Radzievsky says he's so-so because he's tired. He's in Munich, Germany, on an earlier time zone. Other students are yawning, too, because air raid sirens went off last night in the town near Odessa where they all used to live and study with Kudrinova in person. Now her students are scattered, some still at home, some elsewhere in Ukraine, some in Poland, Czech Republic, or as far as Canada. Ukraine's Ministry of Education says nearly 3 million children have resumed their studies, remotely or in person. It may seem surprising, but experts on disaster response say this is exactly what's needed. Yasmin Sharif is the director of Education Cannot Wait, a fund at the United Nations dedicated to supporting education in emergencies. Often when you have a humanitarian crisis, you underprioritize education and focus on water and shelter, which is important. However, what we have seen from many countries of crisis is that they are protracted. They can last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It's crucial, she says, for countries to have a future that they keep investing in children. But it's not easy teaching in the middle of a war. Planning the lessons was really hard for me. Kudrinova is 23 years old and a first-year teacher. She's a fellow with the Ukrainian chapter of Teach for All, a global network started by the founder of Teach for America. I should keep in mind that like some air raid sirens can come on at any time, and I, like, I need to stop the lesson. Kudrinova says, and experts agree, that the routine of school and seeing their friends online is important for the kids' mental health. Otherwise, she says, they're stuck inside all day, on TikTok or playing Fortnite. Even if I'm not teaching like the full curriculum, uh, it's good that they're talking to me, that uh, they're talking to each other, that they're seeing that the life is can be, can remind us of something normal. While some Ukrainian children are keeping up with their studies online, even on their parents' phones, others are enrolling in school in other countries. In Poland, which has received more than a million Ukrainian children, they're creating special classes for them with newly arrived Ukrainian teachers. 
And 2,000 miles from Odessa, in Dublin, Ireland, there are new Ukrainian students enrolling in the school where Phil McCarthy teaches. He has a background in teaching English as a second language. So he was called in the other day to help with a new arrival. They didn't know really how to help the child, and the child was just sitting there lost. He set up some translation software on an iPad. They started with the basics. Just saying, like, hi, uh, I, I, don't, I don't speak any Ukrainian, but I think it's Privet. Four and a half million Ukrainian children are displaced right now. If necessary, teachers will continue remotely through the end of the school year. For the moment, the students in Hanna Kudrinova's class are trying to keep the war in the background, except every morning at 9 a.m. That's when they stop class for a minute of silence. The teacher puts on a YouTube video with the sound of church bells. Anya Kamenetz, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. As U.S. officials broadly condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's growing pressure to divest public pension systems from Russian investment funds. But getting that money out is often easier said than done. From member station WKAR in Lansing, Michigan, Sarah Lear reports. Officials in about half of states have proposed or passed policies calling for Russian divestments from public pensions. But as Emily Brock of the Government Finance Officers Association explains, a pledge to divest isn't the end of the story. One of the broadest misconceptions is that when you say you divest, then you divest. <laughs> the policy action was swift, but the action to actually divest may take some time. For one thing, Moscow's stock exchange has been mostly closed since the war started, leaving sellers without a direct off-ramp. In Michigan, a state retirement board voted at the governor's urging to drop investments connected to Russia or Russian ally Belarus. The resolution came with the caveat that the process would start as soon as practical once market conditions allow. Experts say finding buyers might be a significant challenge, and that likely means selling at a loss. Before the invasion, less than a tenth of one percent of Michigan's nearly $100 billion pension portfolio was tied to Russia. Now those holdings are worth even less as the value of Russia's ruble plummets amid widespread sanctions. North Carolina's treasurer Dale Falwell wants Congress to change federal law to allow states to seize Russian assets by suing over investment losses. He says at this point it wouldn't be practical for his state to offload millions of dollars in Russian holdings, in part because many of those assets are pooled with others in so-called index funds. We're handcuffed. Folks like myself don't pick and choose which stocks are in the index fund. The manager, the custodian of the index fund determines that. Heath Breinerd is with the National Association of State Retirement Administrators and says such calls for divestment are nothing new. Some governments pulled their money from South Africa in the 80s to protest apartheid. Other states have policies prohibiting pension investments in Sudan or Iran. But Brynard says pension managers have to balance ethical goals with legal obligations to invest wisely. Which is not to engage in a fire sale, but rather to systematically identify opportunities to sell their Russian holdings as opportunities develop. Still, Brynard notes that Russian assets comprise a tiny fraction of the more than $5 trillion in local and statewide public pension systems across the country. A typical public pension retiree would likely never notice the effect of divesting 
Russian assets. For Andrei Bodnaruk, who teaches finance at the University of Illinois Chicago, calls to divest from Russia are personal. He's from Ukraine and also sits on a board overseeing retirement savings for public university employees. His board is weighing its options as it watches bills pending in the state legislature that would require Illinois pension systems to sever ties with Russia. Even though holdings in Russia are relatively small, Bodner Rook says public divestment sends a message. Though he acknowledges those effects won't be immediate. We need to understand that it's not going to stop fighting on the ground today, tomorrow, or in a week from now. He and others hope that divestment, coupled with other financial penalties, will work to exert pressure on Russia in the longer term. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Lear in Lansing. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how novelist Douglas Stewart's years as a textile designer in the fashion industry influences his writing. In the forecast, clouds should gradually dominate the sky as they let loose with rain overnight tonight. Lows about 43. Tomorrow, rain should stick around. Breezy, only in the upper 40s. Thursday, still cloudy, could turn windy and could stay wet, topping out only at about 51 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston at 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Standard Company, helping to keep your home comfortable with plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical solutions. Learn more at bostonstandardplumbing.com. And EF Gap Year, an international gap program where students can learn a language, intern abroad, and help make an impact. Learn more at efgapyear.com. Red Sox have won their final game of spring training as they beat the Minnesota Twins 10-6. Boston's record for the preseason was 11 wins, 8 losses, the fourth highest win record in the Grapefruit League. Regular season opener is Thursday at Yankee Stadium. Bruins continue their road trip with a stop in Detroit tonight for a 7.30 game with the Red Wings. Boston will be without David Posternock and Trent Frederick. Coming to WBUR City Space tomorrow evening, Alice Waters, renowned chef and creator of the Farm to Table movement. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Be inspired to simply be with the works of Zanelle Maholi on view through May 8th. More at gardnermuseum.org. And A Street Frames, master frame makers and museum-quality picture framers with their newest location in the SOA Arts District of Boston's South End. astreetframes.com. Hi, I'm Eleanor Beardsley from NPR. It's very important that reporters document what is happening on the ground in Ukraine so that you hear the voices and stories of the people affected, not just those in power. NPR is able to bring you coverage from Ukraine because you support this vital work to bear witness. Your donation to this station makes it possible. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Douglas Stewart entered the literary world with a bang. His first novel, Shuggy Bane, won a pile of major awards, including the Booker Prize in 2020. It told the story of an alcoholic single mother and her children living in the Sight Hill tenement in Glasgow in the 1990s. 
Douglas Stewart's new novel, Young Mungo, takes place nearby with similar characters. But this book centers on a romance between two teenage boys, one Protestant, one Catholic. And I think when you're talking about queerness at that time, and you're also intersecting it with class or with poverty or social mobility, then the stakes are very different for the characters. You know, they can't just up and leave and go find uh, a different place where they belong in the world. They really have to face the world outside their door because that's the only world they know. That world has a very specific way of speaking. So I asked Douglas Stewart to read a paragraph where Mungo reluctantly joins a gang of Protestant teenagers going to fight a rival group of Catholic boys. Mungo came out of the close and joined a pack of proddy boys heading to the waste ground. He fell into formation amongst the baby-faced warriors. He swung his meatless legs in imitation of their gallus way of walking, his shoulders about his ears, and a sour scowl on his face. This swagger was a uniform as ubiquitous as any football top. It had a gangly forward motion like a big, bald, bandy-legged weasel, head swung low, eyes always fixed on the prey ahead, ready to lunge with either a fist or a silver blade. Mungo tried his best to wear the uniform, but he felt like an imposter. It was a poor imitation. Why is it important to you to write in such a specifically Scottish, Glaswegian way, even if that means, you know, including slang that might be new to readers outside of Scotland? Yeah, well, I think readers are always curious. And so the ability to to discover new words or new ways of framing dialogue is, is a joy for me first as, as a reader. But as a writer, I had to decide... Uh, how I was going to approach my characters because they don't often find themselves in literature and they don't turn to literature. And so if I had not written the books in their natural tongue and how they see the world, then I would almost be standing in opposition to them or, or on the outside saying, hey, look at this. And I always want to be standing shoulder and shoulder with my characters. And I want them, first of all, to be able, if they could, if they were real people, to be able to pick up the book and, and really see the world as they know it represented with the language they would use. There are also so many just wonderful words that I feel like people should know, like smurf for a like fine, foggy, just this side of rain almost, like drich to describe weather. There's so many good words. Yeah, they're, they're so fun. And um, I find myself just thinking about them all day long. My favorite is gallus, which mm -hmm. is when someone is very bold or very confident or very self-assured. And um, that was always a big compliment when you were younger. Your title character is named after the patron saint of Glasgow, Saint Mungo. Why did you give him that name? Well, there is backstory to the reason why his parents named him that. And because I think they were hoping after lots of division that he would bring some kind of peace to the city. They live in quite a divided neighborhood in the east end of the city. But for me, uh, St. Mungo was uh, a really big influence on me growing up because he's an, he was an amazing saint. He had these very generous, almost childlike miracles. Uh, he brought a bird back to life. You know, he made a bell ring that didn't have a clapper. He did all of these things and we learned them as kids. And, and my character was as tender and as sweet as St. Mungo. And he's quite a saintly boy. He, he can bear a lot. He can put up with an awful lot. And I just thought, what else could he be called because it's such a celebration of Glasgow? Every saint suffers and your Mungo endures many forms of pain. There were times I had to put the book down because it was such an intense reading experience. And as the author, the creator of this character, how did you decide how far to go? I mean, how did you choose what to put this young man through, what to put readers through? That's a good question. I think, first of all, I try to write in a very honest way. And I try to, you know, sometimes 
characters or oftentimes my characters are going through more than one trial in their lives. It's certainly true of Agnes and Shuggy and Shuggy Bane. And, you know, I think people can be fighting battles on many fronts. And Mungo is going through uh, a question about masculinity. How is he going to become a man? He is trying to find his mother who has disappeared from the family. She keeps just vanishing. She's quite a tragicomic character. And also he's coming to terms with his sexuality. And as readers will discover, he's gone on this camping trip to the north of Scotland, which, you know, is really to show him some masculine pursuits and to get him out of the city, which is suffocating him for a little while. But he's also got to survive that in a way. And so I just thought about all the burdens on this saintly young boy and, and will he rise and, and will he be able to survive it? And for me, you know, if ever I write about violence or I write about heartbreak or sadness, I'm really only doing that to make the tenderness and the love shine more because I think I'm always writing a love story in some way, but some characters have to endure a lot in order to, to meet that with resilience and, and with hope. Writing is your second career. You spent decades as a, a, a senior fashion designer for major companies. Are there things that you learned from your career in fashion that you apply to your work now as a novelist? Yeah, in many ways, it was the only training I had for, for whatever I was going to do in life. But I was known mostly in my fashion career as a textile designer. And so as a writer, I'm fascinated by the senses and by the sensory. I think about touch a lot. And that really sort of, you see it in my work because I write a lot about care and how we care for one another. And also how we're often abandoned by those who should be caring for us. But my characters spend a lot of time in just looking after one another's bodies, you know, whether that's a caress or a hug or just being near one another, because I think that's the most sincere form of love. And in a way that touch, has always fascinated me and it starts really with textiles. But textiles taught me to pay very close attention and to have patience. And I think those are important things for any writer. You know, I really believe in if you focus on the stitch or the warp going over the weft, if you keep really uh, applying yourself to that, eventually everything ladders up to a, to a tapestry. Do you think about what your life would have been like if you had started writing at the beginning of your career instead of the midpoint? Yeah, I sometimes do. And I, and I don't think I have any regrets because I was grateful to have so many chapters in my life and to experience so many different things. And in fact, it was fashion and textiles that brought me to New York. And so perhaps I wouldn't have come here and become an American citizen. I don't know. And so you can't regret. I think about it often, but I don't have any regrets. You wrote your first novel, Shuggy Bane, over about 10 years in secret. And now this book, Young Mungo, comes out with award-winning novelist <laughs> attached to your name. Does that carry the weight of expectations? Yeah, it, I, think it's, I think it's a different game. And I think it, there is definitely a pressure there. But the pressure I try to focus on is just ensuring that my readers have characters that feel very real to them and that they can they can be, feel bereft for when they when they close the last page of the book i write to to connect with people i write to uh really move people and and that's my motivation so i try to ignore the rest of it but you know this is a book i actually began in 2016 which was two years before shuggy bane even had a publishing deal uh and it was four years before he was published and and so in many ways it comes from that very personal intimate space that Shuggy came from. Douglas Stewart, thank you so much for talking with us about your new novel, Young Mungo. Thank you so much, Harry. It's, it's been a pleasure. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Rice University, where being bold is a virtue for its global community of scholars, pursuing unconventional wisdom in the heart of Houston to build a better future for all. Learn more at rice.edu. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. And Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Many Russian Jews in the U.S. left the former Soviet Union decades ago to escape anti-Semitism, and for some, Russia's war in Ukraine is triggering old trauma. This is something that is in their memory, and they might have not thought of it or felt it the way they do these days. Their stories coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. In the western part of Ukraine, a bakery that shut down for two weeks during the war has resumed business and even employs some Ukrainians. A House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol continues to speak with witnesses. Today's witness, former President Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka. Last week, it was her husband, Jared Kushner. We're trying to cast as wide a net as possible to interview anybody who might have information. And it's Poetry Month if you've ever thought about giving poetry a shot but couldn't. NPR's Life Kit has got a guide for you. Coming up, it's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. More horrifying images are emerging from areas north of the Ukrainian capital in areas recently left by Russian forces. NPR's Nathan Rott reports there are claims of possible war crimes. Ukraine's prosecutor general released more photos that it says shows evidence of possible torture and execution of civilians in Bucha, a suburb north of Kiev. Russia has claimed that the photos, videos, and reports coming from areas recently retaken by Ukrainian troops are fake. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he expects more atrocities will be found as more areas emptied by the Russian withdrawal are cleared. In Kyiv and overseas, the images and reports are eliciting anger from politicians and civilians who are demanding an investigation into possible war crimes. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Kyiv. Congress is expected to vote this week on a $10 billion package of COVID preparedness funds. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, it's just half of what the White House had wanted. There is money to boost at-home testing, $5 billion for therapeutics to treat COVID, and funds for vaccines and boosters. But a big item that was left out was funding to vaccinate the world. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says this goes beyond supplying and shipping. 
there are countries around the world who are refusing our vaccine dose, doses because they don't have the mechanisms, the know-how, and the capacity to be able to distribute those doses. So that funding that we've been requesting, we'll continue to press for, uh, would be accounting for that as well. Saki says it's in the U.S. national interest to vaccinate the world to protect against future variants. Tamara Keith, NPR News. There are reports the Biden administration intends to again extend a freeze on federal student loan payments. Current moratorium on loan payments would set to expire next month, but will now reportedly be extended through August 31st. Billionaire Elon Musk is joining Twitter's board of directors. NPR's Shannon Bond reports the announcement comes a day after Musk revealed he is the social media company's largest shareholder. Elon Musk is one of Twitter's most outspoken and opinionated users. Recently, he criticized the company for, in his view, not upholding free speech principles. Now, the Tesla CEO will be able to make his case from an even more powerful perch inside Twitter's boardroom. Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal tweeted that Musk is, quote, both a passionate believer and intense critic of the service and said that's exactly what the company needs. Musk replied he hopes to make, quote, significant improvements to the platform. And he's already taking suggestions. On Monday night, he polled his followers about whether they want an edit button. That's something lots of people on Twitter have long been asking for. Shannon Bond, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 280 points. The Nasdaq fell 328 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Employees of the Massachusetts State Senate are ready to unionize. A majority of Senate staffers have authorized joining a union. They're asking for better health care, standardized pay grades, and raises. WBUR's Stevie Chapman spoke with one staff member who supports the effort. Evan Berry has worked as a Senate staffer since 2019. Upon signing his union card, he thought of his nearly 40 close State House colleagues who left their jobs because the pay wasn't sustainable. These are people who are community leaders and public health experts and racial justice advocates and these brilliant policymakers with deep community ties. And the, the Senate has lost their institutional knowledge. On Thursday, local union leaders delivered a letter asking Senate President Karen Spilka to voluntarily recognize the union. Her office says it's reviewing the request. The union would be just the second in the nation involving state legislative workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Worcester City Councilors vote tonight on whether to appoint Eric Batista as interim city manager. If approved, Batista, currently assistant city manager, would take over June 1st. He would serve nine months while the council searches for a permanent replacement. Current city manager Ed Augustus announced two weeks ago that he'll be stepping down in May. Prosecutors in Western Mass today cleared a man convicted of burning down his Berkshire County home on all charges. 78-year-old Barry Jacobson was accused of setting fire to his home in the town of Richmond and was convicted in 1983. At trial, prosecutors suggested the fire was set for insurance money, and critics of Jacobson's conviction say anti-Semitism may have played a role in the case. Affidavits say the jury foreman made a derogatory comment about Jacobson because of his faith. In the forecast, looks like today may be it for the sunshine for a while. Clouds gather tonight, maybe yielding some showers, lows about 43. Tomorrow could just reach the upper 40s with plenty of rain. Thursday, more clouds around, maybe more showers, strong winds up to 25 miles an hour at times on Thursday. 54 degrees now in the Boston area at 506. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles, and my co-host, Scott Detrow, joins us now from Kiev, Ukraine. Hi, Scott. Hey, Elsa. So you've been in Ukraine for several days now, but more in the western part of the country, and it was unclear that you'd even be able to make it to the capital, Kiev. But Mm -hmm. I understand that Russian troops have moved out of the suburbs there, and you and your team managed to get there safely earlier today. Is that right? Yeah, we got in this afternoon after a nine-hour train ride from Lviv. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you made it there safe and sound because we're starting to learn more about how awful this fighting has been elsewhere in the show. We had our correspondent, Nathan Rott, reporting on some of the most tragic consequences of this war in one of the nearby suburbs, Bucha. And Scott, you are now in the city center of Kiev. I'm just curious, what are your first impressions you know, the, the main impression is that the city feels almost totally empty. We were at times the only people walking down big, wide boulevards. But it's all about perspective here. Uh, all Things Considered producer Kat Lonsdorf is here with me. She was here in Kiev with Mary Louise Kelly seven weeks ago, just before the war began. And she was shocked at how empty it felt compared to then. But we were also talking to NPR correspondent Alyssa Nadwarney, who's been in Kiev for the past week, and she said that there are now way more cars driving around than before. The city is starting to slowly return compared to how things were during the height of fighting in the area. And what about damage to the city? Like, what shape is Kiev in physically? Most of the fighting and shelling has been in the suburbs just north of the city, but still it's a fortified city. We saw sandbags everywhere, piled in front of metro stations that had become bomb shelters, piled in front of windows. We saw big steel and concrete barricades in the streets placed there to block tanks. One other thing that we all noticed, even though we saw many children on our train ride into the city today, mm-hmm. we did not see a single child walking around Kiev today, and that's just very different from other cities we've been wow. in. Well, as we said, you did spend the past week in western Ukraine, far from the actual fighting. How different does it feel over there compared to Kyiv? Yeah, we spent a few days in a city called Ivano-Frankivsk, and life there looks almost normal. It feels almost normal. Voshlovash is a small bakery just off the city's main pedestrian thoroughfare. The walls are bright yellow. The display is, of course, filled with sweet and savory pastries. Cherry. Banana chocolate, uh, apple, and cheese. Lubomir Kitral opened the bakery just a few months ago, this January. He insists we call him Louis. When the war began, Louis shut the bakery down. But two weeks later, he and his employees went back to work. Why? There are three main things. The first thing is that people who came here, we need to feed them. People who came from Kharkiv, Odessa, other uh, big cities of Ukraine, they needed food. Thousands of them have flocked to the relative safety of Ivano-Frankivsk. The second reason was pretty basic. Louis says his employees needed the income. And the, the final thing is that uh, during the first days of war, uh, our government was calling on business owners to reopen. And this business can be reopened and we can work even during the air, air strike alarms. There have been some changes. Curfews mean the bakery's hours are shorter, and that means salaries are lower. 
In the back of the bakery, Nadia Nastyashcha is rolling out dough for Kachapur. We were very happy about that because um, we lost our job and we were waiting for that moment when they will call us again. As she sprinkles cheese on top of the dough and pushes it in, she admits that like many people in Ivano Frankivsk, she started sleeping through the air raid sirens. To be honest, we have um, a small child, so we do not get up. When you look at the customers coming in and out, and out the windows at the buses and the streets full of people, things seem normal. Louis is quick to insist. They're not. Today in the morning I was uh, looking at pictures from Bucha, and I think that this is a catastrophe of uh, world scale, of planetary scale. And I think this is a false idea that Ivano-Frankivsk or any other city can live normal life. The horrific images of Bucha have just begun spreading across Ukraine the day we visited. Louis begins to cry. He steps away to compose himself. <clears throat> Two minutes, please. When Louis reopened the bakery, two of his employees had left Ivano Frankis for Poland. So he hired two people who had come from elsewhere in Ukraine. Maria Nowitzka is one of them. Three days into the war, she decided she needed to flee her home in Kyiv. Oh, it was a hard decision, uh, but it was fast. So how quickly, how did you find this job? Oh, maybe two weeks. I sit without job. <laughs> I just sit in a flat and read the news. And then I understand that war uh, will not end uh, fast and decide to looking for a job. She found an ad for this one. Two days later, it was hers. Do you like the job? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Before the war began, in Kyiv, Maria was an interior designer. Yes. <laughs> Very different. But it's a help to feeling good, feeling that I'm necessary, uh, <laughs> that I help in our economy. <laughs> Svetlana and Nazari Kosik come in with their kids. Anna is three and Ilya is five. They pick out pastries. Cake with chocolate and nuts here for Ilya, and also one with the raspberry. Uh, I got that too, it's really good. (laughs) Svetlana and the children went to Poland when the war began. They stayed in an apartment in Warsaw. But after a month, it was time to come home. We are very happy, it's better to be home, and kids are very happy too, because we really, really wanted to come back. So so you just got back then? They all went to church together this morning. The parents had promised Anna and Ilya a treat afterwards, and here they are. Still, the children get anxious when Nazari isn't right there, after all the separation. And he and Svetlana get fleeting worries about bringing the kids back to Ukraine. It's very hard for children to hear these sounds of uh, airstrike uh, alarm. It's hard for the kids to wake up in the middle of the night and they just close themselves with the curtain or covers. But, at least in this moment, they seem happy. It's Sunday morning, they've got chocolate and raspberry pastries, And all four of them are together. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led to millions of families being uprooted. Most are fleeing the relentless bombing and destruction. And for Russian immigrants here in the U.S., especially those with connections to Ukraine, watching all of this unfold has caused both anger and despair. Michael Puente from member station WBEZ reports. Chicago is home to one of the nation's largest communities of Russian speakers. Many are Russian Jews who lived in the former Soviet Union and fled to escape rampant anti-Semitism when it fell more than 30 years ago. Many of those Russian immigrants came here with little to their name and quickly turned to social service agencies for assistance. For those living north of Chicago, many frequent the Forever Young Adult Daycare Services Center located in Lincolnwood, north of the city. At the center, they gather for lunch and camaraderie and a chance to speak Russian with friends. But the conversation these days often revolve around the events happening back home. After I saw on the news today what Russia is doing to Ukraine, it's fascism, plain and simple. That's Yakan Kagan. He immigrated here from Belarus three decades ago after the fall of the Soviet Union. Like Ukraine, Belarus was then part of the USSR. He says he's shocked to see what is happening between Russia and Ukraine, two countries that he says share an enormous amount of history. Forever Young Adult Daycare Services Center is just one place in the Chicago area catering to Russian-speaking Jewish immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Another is the Russian Senior Center in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. Manager Irma Krasnopolskaya says for those who lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union or lost loved ones in the Holocaust, Russia's attack on Ukraine is acting as a trigger causing trauma to resurface. If we think of those who lived through World War II, so they're going through secondary trauma right now. This is something that is in their memory, and they might have not thought of it or felt it the way they do these days. Many here share that sentiment and are putting the blame on the war squarely on Russian President Vladimir Putin, but not all. A Ukrainian native who declined to provide his name because his opinion is so unpopular blames Ukraine for Russia's invasion. I don't believe that Putin is the butcher the way that Biden has described him. Sitting at the next table over eating lunch is Donna Pressman. Her son, daughter-in-law, and newborn granddaughter Sophie are all in Kiev and trying to keep safe. She was born in Poland in 1941, two years after Hitler attacked her country. She says she can't help but feel that history is repeating itself. I'm horrified. After 81 years, I did not believe that I would live to see the day that my granddaughter would repeat my own history and be born during a war. Sophie was born March 4th when her family was hiding in the basement of a building. Pressman says she hopes one day to see Sophie in Chicago. Until then, she says she prays for her every day. For NPR News, I'm Michael Puente in Chicago.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, My Unsung Hero, the newest entry in our new series from the Hidden Brain Team. In business news, beginning this summertime, JetBlue will offer nonstop service between Boston and two airports in London. Service between Logan and London's Gatwick Airport will begin in mid-July. Flights from Boston to Heathrow Airport started in August. Travel problems in and out of Logan Airport appear to be easing somewhat after a few crazy days of delays. There are, though, still some delays and cancellations today. The website FlightAware shows 100 flights out of Boston are delayed. Another 13 have been canceled today. Wall Street numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Animated by a legacy of promoting inclusion and a commitment to expanding human understanding. Join Ruth Simmons, Ibram X. Kendi, and others to explore legacies of slavery and the path to repair. April 29th. Register at radcliffe.harvard.edu events. Stocks headed southward today. The Dow fell more than three-quarters of 1%, 281 points, to close at 34,641. S&P dropped one and a quarter percent to finish the day at 45.25. The Nasdaq sank two and a quarter percent. It settled at 14,204. Marketplace has details at 6.30. It's now 5.19. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Clouds are moving in for the night tonight. Could let loose with rain overnight. Lows about 43. Tomorrow, rain should stick around. Breezy, only in the upper 40s. Then for Thursday, still cloudy. Could turn windy and should stay wet, topping out only at about 51 degrees. 55 in Boston now. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. The Soviet Union broke up three decades ago, but Russia continues to have a big impact in parts of Eastern Europe. Not only here in Ukraine, where it is, of course, fighting a war, but also next door in the small country of Moldova, where Russia has stationed troops in a separatist region since the 1990s. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports on a place called Transnistria. Moldova's just a bit larger than Maryland, but it struggles with some of the outsized political tensions at work today in Eastern Europe, and nowhere more so than in Transnistria. It's a sliver of land that stretches 250 miles along the border with Ukraine. Vera Semyonov is a farmer. She lives in a part of Transnistria under Moldovan government control, but she faces a huge problem. 91% of our land is under control of the separatist region, and we fight every year, every spring to get there. And then again in the fall to harvest the crops. 
Transnistrian authorities won't let Vera walk to her lands. Instead, they make her drive a roundabout route through a customs post. It's guarded by Transnistrian troops. Overhead flies Transnistria's red and green striped flag with a yellow hammer and sickle. Vera says in some years, she's planted crops only to have Transnistrian authorities seize her harvest with no explanation. One year, they even took one of her tractors, which was towing at least 15 tons of wheat back to the Moldovan-controlled side of Transnistria, where she lives. We were running behind the tractor, yelling, screaming, because this was our food, the food for our kids. I sat on the tractor and I said, no way, I'm not giving you the tractor. That's all my work. This year, she says, Transnistrian officials won't give her access to her fields after July, which would, once again, prevent her from harvesting her crops. Everyone is so nervous and so stressed. We reached out repeatedly to Transnistrian officials for interviews and to visit the Russian-controlled territory. They declined. Transnistria, in its current form, grew out of the breakup of the Soviet Union. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lured for the last time, and an era comes to an end. Moldova declared independence from the USSR in 1991. Transnistria responded by effectively declaring independence from Moldova. A short war followed. Since then, Russia has stationed about 1,500 troops in Transnistria, which is not internationally recognized as independent. The Council of Europe recently deemed it occupied territory. Alexandru Flenka, a former Moldovan deputy prime minister, says the government has tried to resolve this conflict. The founding fathers, so to speak, of this country thought, okay, we need to get rid of the foreign troops that we don't want in our soil. And one way to do this is to proclaim ourselves a neutral state as a sort of a guarantee for Russians. Look, NATO's not coming here, so it's safe for you to withdraw, so please do. uh, To get them out of Transnistria. Exactly. Well, as, as we know, it didn't work out. Andrei Popov, an official with Moldova's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, says Transnistria has strategic value to Russian President Vladimir Putin. For instance, Putin could use Moldova's energy dependency on Russia and Transnistria to pressure the country's pro-Western government, which applied to join the European Union last month. We get about 75% of our electrical energy coming from a Transnistria-Russia-owned energy plant. So this gives Russia a very strong leverage, and should this be interrupted, we'll be in a very difficult situation. Transnistria is not the only Russian-speaking part of Moldova, which is one of Europe's poorest countries. Drive south from the capital of Chisinau, past some of Moldova's many vineyards, and you come to Gagauzia. It's an autonomous region. There are checkpoints, no troops, but a ton of support for Russia. I bumped into Igor Kolza. He's a musician who plays the trumpet. We were about a block from a statue of Vladimir Lenin. And I asked him whom he supported in the war across the border. For sure, I will support Russia. Why? Because they are honest and they are right. And what do you think is the best argument for the invasion? To take out Nazism and fascism in Ukraine. Kolz is referring to President Putin's false claim that his soldiers went to Ukraine to denazify the country. He's surprised that I don't seem better informed. So you don't see on TV how uh, the Nazis are uh, dealing with the people, how they uh, treat them? Give me some examples. They were mining the bomb shelters, uh, they mining the roads, they didn't let the people, you know, to get out of the 
uh, war and Russia does the uh, opposite, they're bringing the humanitarian help. In fact, Russian artillery has hit civilian targets. This exchange, which I had with a number of people in Gagosia, is a reminder of the power of Russian disinformation, as well as the complex politics in this small frontline state, and how support for Russia in this war can defy borders. Frank Langford, NPR News, Moldovan-controlled Transnistria. Okay, time now for my unsung hero, our new series from the team at Hidden Brain. My unsung hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Deb Merchant's unsung hero is her partner of 22 years, Scott Stevens. In 2003, Scott and I had been dating for just a couple of years when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I gave him the choice to opt out of the relationship. And he didn't hesitate to say, no, we're a team. We're doing this together. And so we did. After biopsy and tamoxifen and radiation, the doctor said, we'll never see you again. A couple of years later, however, the cancer came back. And this time it was a different matter. This involved many surgeries. And in January 2007, I started six months of chemotherapy. Our first visit, I thought for sure that Scott would drop me off, head back to his office to continue his work and come pick me up at the end of the day. And instead, he stayed with me all day, making sure I had the right food and tea, being comfortable in a chair with the right pillow and warm blanket. And then, he went to the next person and asked them, are you comfortable? Can I get you anything? Would you like a warm blanket or a pillow? How about some hot tea? And then he went to the next person and the next person and the next person. And I thought maybe the first day that that would be it. But he stuck with me every single week through chemotherapy and he went to every single person in every single chair, every single week throughout that entire period. Scott's care and love of people comes first. He's actually said to me, I'll take love over money any day. And he demonstrated that when we went through chemotherapy together. It's his commitment to be present for someone he loves that made a huge difference in my life. And that's why he's my unsung hero. That was Deb Merchant of Albany, Oregon. Merchant has been cancer free for the last 13 years. She and Scott love to hike, snowshoe, and camp in the Cascade Mountains. My Unsung Hero is also a podcast. You can find new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Proponents of the new Florida law, Parental Rights in Education, say it's about protecting parental rights to decide what their children learn about sexuality and gender. Civil rights groups say it's an attack on the LGBTQ community. Listen to NPR's afternoon news podcast, Consider This, for what's at stake. This is NPR News.
This is WBUR. This may be it for the sunshine for a while. Tonight, clouds gather, maybe yielding showers, lows near 43. Tomorrow could reach the upper 40s, plenty of rain. Then Thursday could bring more clouds and maybe more showers. 54 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with Parable of the Sower. Based on Octavia E. Butler's novel, now a thrilling Afrofuturist opera, April 21st to 24th at the Cutler Majestic. So the World Food Program says that even if the war stops tomorrow, they believe the food market will take six to nine months to fully recover. And what we also know is politically, it's unlikely that sanctions would disappear with the end of a war. And so a lot of the issues related to fertilizer and high energy prices likely would still persist. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has confirmed that the U.S. and its allies are coordinating on fresh sanctions to be leveled against Russia over alleged atrocities against civilians in the suburbs north of Kyiv. They will target uh, Russian government officials, their family members, uh, Russian-owned financial institutions, also state-owned enterprises. It's a part of the continuation of our efforts to uh, put consequences in place, uh, hold uh, hold Russian officials accountable. Uh, New sanctions are to be announced tomorrow. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told the U.N. Security Council today that the Russian military must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes. He spoke to Security Council members by video today. The Russian ambassador said the alleged atrocities north of Kyiv are staged events. Michigan Republican Congressman Fred Upton will not be seeking re-election. Upton announced his retirement from Congress today. NPR's Barbara Spont reports on the latest exit by a Republican who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump. Fred Upton, first elected in 1986, is one of the longest tenured Republicans in the House. I've worked with seven administrations, seven House speakers. None of them would call me a rubber stamp. If it's good policy for Michigan, it's good enough for all of us. Upton was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Of that group, he is the fourth to announce his retirement. Barbara Sprint, NPR News. Washington. In Sacramento, three people are now in custody in connection with the mass shooting over the weekend that left six people dead. Police say the third man who's been arrested is not accused of taking part in the shooting, but that he was seen carrying a gun in the immediate aftermath. The two other suspects are brothers whose roles in the shooting are unclear, all three facing weapons charges. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The fiscal health of Massachusetts appears to be strong. New data from the Baker administration today showed the state collected more than $3.8 billion in tax revenue last month. That beat the administration's expectations, and it's 26 percent more than the state collected in March of last year. Tax collections for the current fiscal year so far are more than 20 percent higher than last year. The demolition of an old warehouse in Nubian Square in Roxbury began today. The site is to become the new campus of the Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology. The tech school is moving from the south end. Governor Charlie Baker says the new building will house a robotics lab, optical shops, and rooftop labs that will provide students access to renewable energy learning.
It's what's going on inside this building that will be way more beautiful than the beauty and the glory of this particular building itself when it's finished. So congratulations to the team, to the board, to the president, especially to the faculty and the students. The new building is set to open in two years. A new basketball league for girls will honor the state trooper who was killed last month on Route 93 in Stoneham. The trooper Tamar Bucci, it's a unity basketball league for girls, will get underway tonight in Brockton. It's open to girls in Brockton and two nearby towns. The teams will be coached by state troopers. Bucci died when her cruiser was struck by a fuel tanker. Massachusetts prosecutors have dropped decades-old arson charges against a New York man, in part because at least one juror made anti-Semitic remarks about him. Berkshire County DA Andrea Harrington said today the case against Barry Jacobson is over. Here's WBR's Deborah Becker. Jacobson was sentenced to six months in prison and had to pay a $10,000 fine after his 1983 conviction for setting a fire at his family's vacation home in the Berkshires. D.A. Harrington says after his release, it was learned that at least one juror made anti-Semitic remarks during deliberations. As a prosecutor, I have a legal, ethical, and moral obligation to ensure that jury verdicts are rendered free from bias. There were also questions about the forensic evidence against him. Jacobson lost his commercial real estate license after his conviction. He tried to get a pardon, but that would have required him to admit to the crime. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The forecast for tonight, overcast with rain, lows about 43. For tomorrow, rain should stick around. Breezy, highs only in the upper 40s. And Thursday, still cloudy, could turn windy and could stay wet, topping out at about 51 degrees on Thursday. This is WBUR. BUR, it's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Kiev, Ukraine. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. The Democratic-led House Select Committee that's investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol interviewed former President Trump's daughter Ivanka today for several hours. She is the highest profile member of the Trump family to talk to the committee. She appeared virtually and voluntarily. Committee Chair Benny Thompson had recently hinted to reporters that Ivanka, who was also a White House advisor, would appear. Just a few days ago, her husband Jared Kushner made his own appearance. First of all, we're trying to cast as wide a net as possible uh, to interview anybody who uh, might have had information as to what occurred on January 6th. And obviously, uh, they are central to that. All right. Joining us now to discuss all of this is NPR congressional reporter Claudia Grisales. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Elsa. All right. So can you just catch us up here? Why is the committee so interested in talking to Ivanka Trump? This comes more than two months after the panel issued a detailed letter asking Ivanka Trump to voluntarily appear. The panel said she was in direct contact with her father, former President Trump, at key moments on January 6th. For example, they said she heard the former president from the Oval Office that morning. 
trying to convince former Vice President Mike Pence to step out of his constitutional duties, a ceremonial role, and reject the election's results. And also, the panel has learned from other witnesses that White House staff had asked for her help to intervene and get her father to sooner tell the rioters to go home. Right. Okay. And explain how that ties into Jared Kushner's interview with the panel, which happened last week. Right. He's also a former White House senior advisor, and he appeared before the committee last Thursday for more than six hours. And although he was not at the White House on January 6th, several lawmakers said his testimony was, quote, helpful. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson told me last night that some things were revealed, but the committee will share that information later, saying, quote, it's helping us find the facts. Thompson also told me Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, these high-profile witnesses, were part of a group in Trump's orbit most of the time. And in talking to reporters today, Thompson updated us and generally described Ivanka Trump's testimony, which ran for more than five hours. She's answering questions. I mean, you know, not uh, in a broad, chatty term, but she's answering questions. So this is part of the larger story the panel is trying to tell of efforts even within Trump's inner circle to try and stop the insurrection. And it marks a big moment as the panel starts to get closer to wrapping up their work. You mentioned that larger story. Where, where is the committee in terms of telling the public that story? Yes, they're getting close to slowing down a frantic pace of interviewing witnesses so they can turn their attention to public hearings. They're up to more than 800 witnesses now, and they've collected hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. Already, the committee has interviewed key advisors who surrounded former Vice President Pence. They've obtained the former president's call log on January 6th and thousands of text messages tied to his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Thompson and others tell me they're on track to hold these public hearings starting in May, although we should note this has been delayed before, so it remains fluid. But this is slated to be the first set of several hearings to present these findings, and they could continue into June, for example, so we could see those in later months this summer. And finally, they're aiming to issue a interim report this summer and final this fall. All right. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. All right, to Oklahoma now, where the Republican-controlled legislature has approved a bill to make abortion a felony, punishable up to 10 years in prison. The state's Republican governor has pledged to sign any anti-abortion bill that comes to his desk. GOP-led states around the country are advancing anti-abortion legislation as the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court weighs a case that could overturn abortion rights. With us now is Randy Crable from the Tulsa World to explain more. Welcome. Thank you. All right. So how would this bill work? Like, would it make it illegal to either perform an abortion or to receive one? Well, the uh, penalties uh, would just apply to those uh, who perform the abortion. So, uh, no, it would not apply to, to women who have abortions. And I should say that we already have in statute uh, legislation that would return uh, Oklahoma to its pre-Roe uh, law or statutes um, if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Right. And okay. and so the the author or the House author of this bill says that's that's his intention. 
that and, if, the Supreme, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, then this bill would go into effect. Right. But before the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, should that ever happen, to be clear, this bill would be unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade, correct? That's correct. Yeah, okay. right. So if, if and when the governor signs this, and he probably will, uh, there's almost certain to be an immediate challenge to it. So less restrictive anti-abortion legislation had been considered, right? I mean, a, a total ban mm-hmm. seems like the most aggressive measure being advanced anywhere in the U.S. right now. I, I would guess. I mean, I, I, I don't know what's going on in other states. And the legislature has already passed something similar to, uh, you know, what Texas had done. And this, and this bill is actually a carryover from last year. This had passed the Senate last year. And it was just uh, it was just kind of sitting there. We're we're on a two year legislative cycle, you know, sort of like Congress is. So uh, bills that don't pass during the first the per, the first session of a legislature are carried over. So this one was just kind of sitting there mm-hmm. and was brought up without a whole lot of notice. It, it appeared on the agenda uh, late yesterday afternoon. And I understand that this bill, it passed as abortion rights supporters were protesting today outside the state capitol. Mm-hmm. Did, did that in any way affect the vote inside the capitol? Well, I don't think it affected the vote much. It, it affected the way the bill was passed. The, the Democratic minority usually fights these things pretty much tooth and nail. They decided not to today because, A, it was clearly unconstitutional, but also because it was brought up for a vote just as this uh, rally was supposed to begin. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Democratic members were scheduled to speak at this rally. So they decided to go ahead and speak at the rally and not uh, and, and not fight this. Um, you, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they had a pretty uh, tense uh, floor fight over over the uh, over the Texas type bill. Right. And uh, so anyway, the, the Democrats decided not to fight this. So it, did, it didn't really affect the outcome, but it did affect how the bill was passed. It wound, it wound up being passed with very little notice. And in fact, there was no, you know, like usually um, the Republicans have some kind All of a right. press release ready to go right. out. They, they didn't. They We're going to have anything. to end it there. That is Randy Crable from the Tulsa World. Thank you very much for joining us today. Sure. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Happy Poetry Month. Wait, are you saying poetry isn't your thing? Well, maybe it is time to give it a shot. NPR's Life Kit even has some tips for you on how to do that. Here's NPR's Andrew Limbong with your Poetry On-Ramp. You probably don't need an official month to get you to pick up a book or listen to music. But I promise you, poetry can offer you the same rush of feelings. It's visceral to me, and I, and I, I can't explain always what it is that gives me that feeling. It's just that when I have it, 
It's the only thing that matters. That's Franny Choi, poet and co-host of the poetry podcast Versus, as in VS, the abbreviation, by the way. And she says, a love of poetry comes not from your head, but from your gut, which is our first bit of advice when it comes to appreciating poetry. Try and forget how you learned it in school. Most commonly, people are taught that the way to engage with a poem is by parsing it, by trying to um, understand it and master it and be able to write an essay about it. And I think that keeps us from really developing personal relationships to poetry. Sure, learning about similes and meter and form has its place, but it's not like you have to know a thing about cinematography to appreciate a movie, right? Which brings us to our next tips, which are, one, read the poem out loud, and then two, visualize the poem. Poet and UCLA professor Harriet Mullen says, think of the poem you're reading like a movie you're directing. What colors would you use? What kind of setting would there be? Can you imagine the speaker? Does the speaker seem to be male or female or both or neither or indeterminate? What might the speaker be wearing? I asked Mullen if I could try this out on one of her poems. Okay. If that works. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so it's called Still Waiting, and then it says, For Alison Saar. Please approach with care these figures in black. Regard with care the weight they bear, the scars that mark their hearts. Do you think you can handle these bodies of graphite and coal dust? This color might rub off. A drop of this red liquid could stain your skin. This black powder could blow you sky high. No ordinary pigments blacken our blues. Would you mop the floor with this bucket of blood? Would you rinse your soiled laundry in this basin of tears? Would you suckle hot milk from this cracked vessel? Would you be baptized in this fountain of funky sweat? Please approach with care. These bodies still waiting to be touched. We invite you to come closer. We permit you to touch and be touched. We hope you will engage with care. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicely done. Oh, <laughs> I'm very nervous. Um, so I told her what I saw. All the things that Someone we dressed about. in dirty, um, dusty coveralls, making a speech at an auditorium or something. It didn't match her intention when writing the poem, but that's okay, because our last tip is there are no wrong answers. Trust yourself as much as you trust the poet. This is so wonderful because when I write something, I know what I'm thinking when I'm writing it. Uh-huh. And what is uh, so interesting to me and what I'm always curious about is how does the reader experience that? Because obviously it's going to be different because the reader was not right with me when I wrote it. And, you know, even if I tell you exactly what I thought and where I was and and all of that, it's still going to be a different poem for you, for any reader. And hopefully, with some of this advice in mind, you'll be one of those readers. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. And for more tips on reading more, or even how to get started on finally writing your novel, head to npr.org slash lifekit. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, golfer Tiger Woods says he plans to play at the Masters, his first major tournament since a serious car accident last year. That story is just ahead. Red Sox won their final game of spring training today as they beat the Minnesota Twins 10-6. Boston's record for the preseason was 11 wins, 8 losses. The regular season opener is Thursday at Yankee Stadium. Boston Bruins are going to be shorthanded tonight when they play the Red Wings out in Detroit. Forwards Dave.
David Pasternak and Trent Frederick will both be out of the lineup after they suffered injuries last night against the Columbus Blue Jackets. It's unclear how long they're going to be out. In the forecast, sunshine's going to be out for a couple days. Look for, meaning away for a couple days. Look for clouds and showers tonight down in the low 40s. Chance of rain after midnight. Then tomorrow, a much greater chance of rain, light winds. A little bit under 50 degrees. 54 degrees now in Boston at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep. NPR News is dedicated to bearing witness to the war in Ukraine. Our journalists are on the ground bringing you the voices of people at the heart of the story. It's work that takes resources to do well and takes resources to do safely. It happens because of listeners who support this NPR station. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It was August 15th of last year when Kabul fell. Not long after, the Taliban held a press conference and promised a more inclusive, more progressive Afghanistan. Islamic Emirate is committed to the right of women within the framework of Sharia. Our women have the same rights. They're going to be working shoulder to shoulder with us. Well, fast forward to today, girls are banned from school after sixth grade. Women cannot board planes without a male relative, but the policies are not being implemented consistently. There's a great deal of uncertainty. There's a great deal of fear among people about what is to come. That's Kathy Gannon. She's reported on the Taliban for decades. She's the news director for Afghanistan and Pakistan for the Associated Press. Gannon told me the gap between the Taliban's promises eight months ago and today's more restrictive edicts are, in part, the product of a generational divide within Taliban leadership. The younger generation or the newer guard, they certainly do believe in education for girls and and beyond grade six. Their own uh, girls are being educated often in Pakistan, where they still might have some families. And they certainly don't object to education. Of course, it must be segregated. Of course, it is conservative, deeply religious society. Uh, before the Taliban and now with the Taliban. There are are women working, for example, at the airport, at passport control, in full, you know, hijab with the scarf, a face exposed, but certainly with the scarf, Um, women at the health ministry, women at the education ministry. But there are restrictions, and women have been largely the target of these repressive restrictions. Um, Since it is the Taliban that is now running the country. What what do they say when the gap between what they promised on many fronts last summer and the reality of today, when that is pointed out? Sure, you're, you're absolutely right. And when you talk to those who are on that pragmatic side, for example, in terms of the education of girls beyond grade six, none of them will say that uh, they oppose it. They will all say they support it. But, you know, you have to go slowly because it has to be an edict that goes countrywide and countrywide it's not supported. In the deep rural areas, there is a resistance to girls going to school beyond grade six. And and so they use that as an 
excuse really because you certainly can um, allow girls to go to school in the cities in vast areas of the, the, the country. So I think that it is more about the leadership of the Taliban trying to figure out who will dominate, whether it will be the more hardliners, more older generation rooted in tribal tradition and tribal mores, or the younger, more pragmatic that understands that you that Afghanistan needs to engage with the world, that it needs to give to the, the women and the girls the rights um, that their own religion dictates, and they say dictates. Um, I introduced you by saying you have reported for a long time on the Taliban. I'm curious what has surprised you in these last eight months, if it, if anything, mm-hmm. um, watching them come back, watching them try to figure out how are we actually going to run this country? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest change for me that I, I see, um, not, not a lot of surprises, you know, I mean, um, but I guess it's the uh, leadership struggle. In the last time they were in power, Mullah Omar was, was the final word, and no one could challenge it, the council. And I remember when they destroyed the Buddhas, and somebody I knew on uh, Taliban on leadership council, he said to them, you know, don't do it. It's like cutting the throat of my son. You're destroying Afghanistan's legacy. But nobody could, once Mullah Omar had made a decision, uh, challenge it. That's not the case today. You have a lot of strong leaders and groups within the leadership that it is interesting to me and and unknown to me how that will play out. And and that certainly will impact how Afghanistan looks uh, going forward. Where do you see the country going? I mean, are, are we looking at endless internal political struggle or or do you think this new Taliban at some point will manage to speak with one voice to get its act together, as it were? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's only been eight months. I think it's premature to predict one way or the other. But I think there certainly is an effort on their part to try to get to a position where they're actually governing the country. Um, how they will get there and what it will look like is still unknown. And that, and that's really difficult for Afghans because they're struggling with that uncertainty. That is Kathy Gannon, News Director for Afghanistan and Pakistan for the Associated Press, speaking with us today from Islamabad. Kathy Gannon, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Just over a year ago, golfer Tiger Woods was severely injured in a single car crash near Los Angeles. On Thursday, he plans to return to major tournament golf at the Masters. As NPR's Tom Goldman reports, it's the latest dramatic comeback for the 15-time major champion. Tiger Woods showed up at Augusta National Golf Course this past weekend, and that clatter coming from Georgia was the sound of golf reporters deleting their pre-Masters stories. Because there was only one story now. Nearly 14 months after doctors considered amputating his right leg, Woods was seriously mulling another go at the green jacket, awarded annually to the Masters winner. Tuesday, his decision. Well, as of right now, I feel like I am going to play, as of right now. During practice rounds Sunday and Monday, Woods limped on a right leg filled with rods, plates, and screws. But he told reporters he wasn't in Augusta, just with a happy-to-be-here attitude. You guys know me better than that. I don't show up to an event unless I think I can win it. 
That attitude carried Woods to one of his most dramatic tournament victories, the 2019 Masters, his first major championship since 2008, and one that came a couple of years after spinal fusion surgery. His comebacks from many surgeries and injuries are part of his legend, right along with the 15 major titles, a record tying 82 PGA tournament wins, and of course, the scandal with his multiple marital infidelities. Now, this chapter, one that will prompt golf fans around the world to tune in and watch Woods gate as he navigates the long and undulating Augusta golf course as much as they marvel at his powerful swing. It's his focus, too. I don't have to worry about the, the ball striking or the, the game of golf. It's actually just the hills out here. That's going to be the challenge, and it's going to be a challenge of, of a major marathon. If anyone can meet the challenge, it's Woods. So says fellow pro Brooks Kepka, who noted in his sometimes cranky way the significance of Woods' return to golf. I mean, we need him, the game needs him, every, everybody needs him, the fans need him, all that stuff. All that stuff is about to transform State Augusta into a madhouse. Well, as mad a place can be that bans running around the course. Because Tiger's back, and for the entire world of sports, not just golf, that means pay attention. There could be more magic, even with all the rods, plates, and screws. Tom Goldman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. This is 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, clouds should gradually dominate the sky, could let loose with rain overnight tonight, lows about 43. For tomorrow, rain should stick around, breezy, only in the upper 40s. And for Thursday, still cloudy, could turn windy, could be wet as well, topping out only at about 51 degrees. Travel problems in and out of Logan Airport appear to be easing somewhat after a weekend and a Monday with a spate of flight problems. There are still, still though, today a smaller number of delays and cancellations, so check with your airlines. This is WBUR. It's 559. I'm education reporter Carrie Young. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The UN Security Council today heard stories of alleged Russian war crimes committed in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. They killed entire families, adults and children, and they tried to burn the bodies. Coming up, a report from Bucha. It's Tuesday, April 5th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, some people who fled Kiev because of the war in Ukraine are starting to return. At the train station there, they share their reasons for returning and their fears about the future. Coming up on Marketplace, while international sanctions devastated the value of the Russian ruble, there are signs that the currency may be mounting a comeback. Also on All Things Considered, despite a difficult election ahead for the Georgia GOP, lawmakers are pushing to the right on education, passing a parent's bill of rights and a ban on transgender sports and so-called divisive concepts. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told the U.N. Security Council today the Russian military must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes committed in his country. Speaking through an interpreter in a video plea to the body, Zelensky pointing to horrific evidence of brutality that is emerging as Russian forces pull back from areas near the Ukrainian capital. The world can see that the Russian what Russian military did in Bucha while keeping the city under their occupation. But the world has yet to see what they have done in other occupied cities and regions of our country. Images from the town of Bucha, which have shown bodies in the streets, have galvanized world condemnation of Russian President Vladimir Putin, while also increasing calls for tougher sanctions and possible war crimes prosecutions. Russia has denied the allegations, saying the reported atrocities are staged. Top U.S. military officer says he supports permanent military bases in Eastern Europe that would house U.S. forces on a rotational basis. General Mark Milley's comments coming as NATO is looking at shoring up its presence in the area following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Here's NPR's Tom Bowman. General Milley told a congressional panel he favors cycling forces through permanent bases in places like Poland, Romania, and the Baltic states, but he recommended against stationing U.S. forces for multi-year tours as they are now in Germany. So you get the effect of permanence by rotational forces cycling through permanent bases. Uh, and, and, and what you don't have to do is incur the cost of family moves, uh, PXs, schools, housing, and that sort of thing. Milley said all those NATO countries in Eastern Europe are very willing to build and pay for the bases. NATO officials are planning to meet in Madrid in June to map out a more expansive presence in Eastern Europe. Tom Bowman, NPR News. With hundreds of abortion rights demonstrators standing outside, the Oklahoma legislature has passed a major ban on the procedure. Reporter Catherine Sweeney tells us this bill would classify performing an abortion in nearly all cases as a felony. Abortion advocates were demonstrating against the spate of bans the legislature had already approved. The House of Representatives then passed a bill that appeared to fall dormant in 2021, Senate Bill 612. It would charge the medical professionals who perform abortions with felonies, punishable by fines of up to $100,000 and 10 years in prison. The measure is headed to the governor for signature. The state passed a similar law in 2016, but then-Governor Mary Fallon vetoed it. The current governor, Kevin Stitt, has pledged to sign all abortion restriction measures that cross his desk. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Sweeney in Oklahoma City. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow down 280 points to 34,641. The Nasdaq fell 328 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The COVID-19 Omicron subvariant BA2 now makes up the vast majority of new cases in New England. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is estimating that accounts for more than 84 percent of new cases. Counties in Massachusetts are seeing a slight upward trend in the amount of virus detected in wastewater. 
The COVID tracking firm BioBot Analytics shows 65 percent of the viruses found in Middlesex County are the BA2 variant, more than 57 percent in Suffolk County. Funeral services for Marine Captain Ross Reynolds were held this morning at St. Cecilia's Church in Lemonster. Captain Reynolds and three other Marines were killed last month when their aircraft crashed during a NATO exercise in Norway, a training exercise. Today, hundreds of people lined the streets as a horse-drawn carriage brought Reynolds' casket from City Hall to the church. Governor Baker attended the services. Reynolds was buried with full military honors at the State Veterans Cemetery in Winchenden. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is voicing her support for a bill that allows undocumented immigrants to get a driver's license. The bill was passed by the Massachusetts House with a veto-proof majority back in February. The state Senate is expected to approve it soon. At a press conference today, the mayor pointed to Boston's immigrant community and said licenses will give undocumented people access to vital resources. 29% of our residents come from an immigrant background, and so supporting our immigrant communities is supporting our city. Proponents argue the bill will make Massachusetts roads safer. Opponents say it rewards those who are living in the country illegally. School officials in Haverhill are considering whether to increase security at the high school after a recent fight among students after which a knife was recovered. Brittany Quintana has a freshman son at the school. Last night, she urged school committee members to do something to protect students. If that knife that was brought into the school harmed my child who was feet away from the incident, this would be a completely different meeting. Haverhill superintendent says the school is understaffed and school leaders are struggling to fill positions. The superintendent says they also want to limit student cell phone use at the school because video of fights are posted to get attention on social media. Red Sox won their final game of spring training today as they beat the Minnesota Twins 10-6. to The regular season starts on Thursday. A few showers due in tonight. A lot of clouds. Lows near 43 degrees. Tomorrow could ju- just reach the upper 40s with rain aplenty. Thursday could bring in more clouds and maybe more showers as well. 54 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation working together with communities to break down barriers and prepare all people for success in their jobs and careers as employees or entrepreneurs. More online at Kaufman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow, riding the train east into Kyiv here in Ukraine. And it's fair to say this train is pretty crowded. We've been walking through the compartments. They're full. They're full of families, people with suitcases, people bringing pets with them. This is the opposite of what we saw in the early days of the war when people were fleeing Kyiv on trains like this. Right now, here in this moment, it seems like people are coming back to Kyiv. At the train station in central Kyiv, there are armed police checking documents and passports. They're verifying identities and looking for weapons before letting passengers into the station. While we're waiting, we talk to some of our fellow passengers. Some are fleeing from places like Mariupol, but most are returning to a newly liberated Kyiv. 53-year-old Maria Kuschuk is dragging a small suitcase behind her. She's coming back to Kyiv after initially fleeing to a nearby city. She left her kids there, but she wanted to come back to be in the city to help the economy here. She says she missed Kyiv a lot. And right now, the threat from Russia as troops have fully left the area seems to have gone away. Standing nearby, another woman, Svetlana Blavatna, 
is bundled up in a coat with a scarf wrapped around her head. Through our interpreter, she tells us she's coming back from Chernobyl in the West, but she's worried about the Russians coming back. I'm still afraid that they can come back, they can do this, they can retaliate again, they can do a second wave, and I know there is a risk. 35-year-old Petro Mazuk holds his passport in his hand, ready to pass through the ID check. His hoodie is up, and he looks a little dazed. He says he stayed in Kyiv for a few weeks during the war. But then at some point it became really, really, really like terrifying. I decided to go to see my parents, and now I'm coming back here. We mentioned we're surprised to see the train so full today. He says, yeah, he's surprised too. I'm thinking the city is getting back to life slowly but firmly, so that's what I want to take part of it. Then we ask about the one thing that seems to be on everyone's mind here right now, the gruesome discoveries in recent days in the suburbs of Kyiv less than 20 miles away. His eyes tear up. He looks away. He says reading that news was the hardest day of his life. That grim reality of what has happened in Kiev's suburbs, particularly in Bucha, weighs heavily on the city just as it weighs heavily on people around the world. NPR's Nathan Rott was in Bucha today, and he joins us now to tell us what he saw We should warn listeners, a lot of what we are about to discuss will be very disturbing. Hey, Nate. Hey, Scott. And Nate, remind us why just about every Western leader is talking so much about Bucha this week. Yeah, so Bucha is this place that was recently left by Russian forces, and it's a place that, you know, some of the most horrifying accounts of the war are coming from. Uh, Dead civilians lining streets next to bikes or with spilled groceries, Uh, deceased men who appear to have their hands tied, it's those images that are raising the most serious questions about war crimes to this point in the conflict, and it's those images that are causing the United Nations Security Council to meet today. You were there today. Tell us what you saw. Yeah, so I went on a press tour arranged by Ukrainian officials. It was a very large group of journalists, well over 100, who were all being escorted by police into this area that's still being swept from mines. Uh, One of the places we stopped is one that you've probably seen if you've been looking at the images from Bucha. It's a narrow residential street that's clogged with destroyed and burnt military vehicles. The street is littered with bullet casings, torn camouflage jackets, and craters from artillery rounds. In places there's so much ash on the ground, it actually feels like you're walking on black sand. A small dark dog barks beside its owner, his home destroyed. All of the homes on this street have been damaged. Voldemort Abramov's is one of the worst. A fire broke out? Yeah, I started uh, extinguishing the fire. I tried to. You can see it right there. Our translator, Luca, points to a burnt fire extinguisher as we walk through the rubble, making our way to the back of what's left of Abramov's house. He says Russian troops threw a grenade in his window the first night they came and yelled to come out of the house. They said, hands, show your hands. So he, his daughter, and her husband walked out, hands in the air. The Russians started asking, who are you? Where are the Nazis? And he said, there are no Nazis here. The Russian troops took Oleg, Abramov's son-in-law, to the road, he says. And they shot him in the head. He says he took his daughter as bullets were flying. They went to a neighbor's house and hid there. They'd stay there for the next month, wearing the same clothes Abramov was wearing as we talked to him. 
His son-in-law's body laid there, he says, the entire time. I don't know how I held on, he says. The explosions, living in a basement. I was ready, he says, to walk out and just get killed. Abramov is one of many residents in Bucha trying to figure out what to do next. Officials are telling residents not to return. The area is still not safe. Police and military are sweeping neighborhoods block by block looking for mines, unexploded ordnance, and bodies. And sadly, they're finding all of the above. At a rural subdivision in Bucha near a brightly colored playground, Ukrainian police gather journalists in front of a house. They're moving badly burned bodies into bags. <clears throat> Six bodies were found here the night before, says police spokesman Dmitro Andreev. Four women, two men. Here's Andreev's translator. They was uh, shot by, uh, by, by gunfires, and then uh, somebody trying to hide this crime and to, to burn this, uh, these bodies. Ukraine's prosecutor general is examining the bodies that are being discovered here, looking for evidence of possible war crimes. That was Nate Rott reporting in Bucha. And, and Nate, we should be clear that what we've just heard are allegations of war crimes, but they are allegations that have not yet been fully investigated. Yeah, that's right. The only investigation that's going on right now, to our knowledge, is by Ukrainian authorities and journalists. Uh, the United Nations has said an independent investigation is needed to ensure accountability, but that doesn't seem to have been initiated yet. Nate Rott from NPR, thank you for reporting on such a difficult story. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I appreciate you. On the final day of their session, Georgia Republicans muscled through a bill paving the way for restrictions on transgender kids playing school sports. Lawmakers passed a slew of conservative education priorities this year, but Georgia voters have been pushing in the other direction, voting for Joe Biden in 2020. WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass tells us how this flurry of education bills may animate this year's midterms. For most of the day, legislation on trans kids in sports appeared to be dead. Then, just after midnight and the urging of Georgia's governor, Republican lawmakers shoved the provision into another bill. Isn't it true, for, for, Mr. For what purpose does the senator from the 40th rise? Parliamentary inquiry. State your inquiry. Isn't it true that the anti-trans bill is attached to this bill that we have not had the favor of being I'm able to I'm certain each and every member is capable of making that decision. It passed without debate. Democrats like Senator Sally Harrell were stunned. I don't think you want to hear the words that I'm feeling right now. She has a trans child. And I'm going to have to tell my child that that's how our government works. This session, Georgia lawmakers passed strict limits on how teachers talk about race, a bill that makes it easier for parents to complain about books in school libraries and a parent's bill of rights. Georgia's electorate may have become more diverse, but Republicans have reason to think their education bills will resonate, especially in the hotly contested campaign for governor. In the governor's race in Virginia last year, Republican Glenn Youngkin campaigned on unmasking kids and banning critical race theory. He won and became Virginia's first GOP governor in eight years. If you don't hear that message loud and clear, Democrat or Republican, then you're missing the boat. 
Chuck Clay, a Republican lobbyist in Georgia, says Republicans looked at Virginia and saw that talking about education helped them walk a fine line, pleasing the party's base and appealing to swing voters. Now, recent Democratic polling suggests older voters, not parents, may have been the real swing voters in Virginia. Still, an internal Democratic Governors Association report cited education as the top issue motivating voters who went for Biden in 2020 and Republican Glenn Youngkin a year later. Education issues are going to be a big factor in whether we see a red wave in 22 in Georgia or a continued blue wave. Georgia Republican Senator Clint Dixon says he was listening to his constituents when he wrote a bill allowing parents to opt their kids out of school mask mandates. I tell some of my Senate colleagues their primary issue is election integrity. In Gwinnett, it's education. I've got parents that voted for my opponent last time that plan on voting for me now because I've taken up these issues that they care about. There's also the risk that Republicans go too far. Even conservative governors in Utah and Indiana vetoed bills restricting trans kids from playing school sports. Karen Watkins, a Democrat on the Gwinnett County School Board in Georgia, says these Republican bills purposefully lean into wedge issues like race and gender. I can't see anything in any of these bills built on fear that would actually help the children. When Watkins won her seat in 2020, she was among the first black women to sit on the board. Watkins says these divisive bills and the politics around them just ratchet up the temperature. It's just troubling to me because education should be the thing that brings us together, not divides us. Because that's one thing we all have in common. It's the center of our community. Watkins says that quality has eroded and she's worried it could soon be too late to restore it. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR News. What's ahead for government-funded COVID-19 treatment, tracking, and vaccinations? That's coming up next on WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Checking business news. Beginning this summertime, JetBlue will offer non-stop service between Boston and two airports in London. Service between Logan and London's Gatwick Airport will begin in mid-July. Then flights from Boston to Heathrow will start in August. On Wall Street, stocks headed downward today. The Dow fell more than three-quarters of a percent, 280 points to close at 34,641. S&P dropped one and a quarter percent to finish the day at 45.25. The Nasdaq sank two and a quarter percent to settle at 14,204. All the details in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU Center for Professional Education, offering certificates in real estate studies. Stay current and competitive by earning a certificate in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Classes begin the week of April 11th. Sign up at bu.edu slash professional. Red Sox closed out spring training today by topping the Minnesota Twins in Fort Myers 10-6. to The regular season begins Thursday as the Sox take on the Yankees in the Bronx. Bruins continue their road trip with a stop in Detroit tonight for a 7-30 game against the Red Wings. Forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Being Maholi, Portraits as Resistance, on view through May 8th. More at GardnerMuseum.org. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required, restrictions apply.
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Should be overcast overnight tonight. Some showers after midnight down in the low 40s. Chance of rain after midnight. Tomorrow, a much greater chance of rain. Light winds a little under 50. Thursday, some showers. A lot of clouds around. A little bit warmer. Highs just topping 50 degrees. 52 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Marketplace starts at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with Parable of the Sower, based on Octavia E. Butler's novel, now a thrilling Afrofuturist opera, April 21st to 24th at the Cutler Majestic. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Congress is considering a $10 billion package to help fund the fight against COVID. And we're already getting an idea of what's at stake for Massachusetts and for the country. Last month, the federal government started running out of money for its COVID response. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel is here to walk us through what another injection of cash would mean. Hi, Gabriella. Hi there. So until last week, the federal government helped ensure that there was free testing for COVID, free treatment and free vaccines. That is not the case right now. What happened? Well, in early March, Democrats nixed COVID funding from a much bigger spending bill, and that forced the Biden administration to announce a whole range of cuts. For example, in the past, you could walk into a pharmacy and get a COVID vaccine without insurance. The federal government would pick up the tab. Right now, you have to find a state-sponsored site in Massachusetts for a free vaccine. COVID treatments are another example. The federal government stopped paying for monoclonal antibody infusions to be administered. So right now, patients are having to decide whether they want it, sometimes without knowing how much it might cost them. If Congress passes new COVID funding, would that help patients uh, get treatments like monoclonal antibodies uh, at no cost and boosters and vaccines as well? So that's what many public health experts hope happens. But we're talking about Congress here. So these things can change up until it's actually signed. And the current situation, where there aren't enough funds, shows what's at stake. Scott Dryden-Peterson oversees outpatient COVID treatment for the Mass General Brigham Hospital System. He says as people resume their pre-pandemic lives and drop many restrictions and precautions, it's important for society and our government to provide for those at most risk. Staying open will mean more people get COVID, and we need to be able to respond to take care of those who are vulnerable from getting severely ill. And the lack of support to be able to provide care for them is a major challenge of that strategy. Uh, Gabriella, what about COVID testing? Well, we have seen a major shift in the testing strategy. Now there is more of a focus on at-home rapid tests. Massachusetts shut down 30 free testing sites just last week. 11 remain open. This worries Dryden-Peterson partly because it's hard to stand up sites again if they are needed. And there has been a small but a real uptick in positive cases in just the last couple of weeks. But a state official tells me that there are no plans to reopen shuttered sites. 
And what about tracking the virus and any new variants? Are we still able to do that? Well, with or without new federal funding, there are big changes in this area. As people move towards those rapid tests, and as we said, free testing sites are closing, this is a big loss of information about where the virus is spreading. This is a concern according to several different experts I've spoken to. But at the very same time, the federal government has drastically reduced its investment in genomic sequencing, which is how scientists identify and track variants of concern. I spoke with Bronwyn McGinnis at the Broad Institute, which does the bulk of sequencing here in Massachusetts. She says federal funds now cover only about 120 samples in the state each week. That's down from about 5,000. McGinnis says this makes for a very low resolution picture of what's happening. Hopefully, you know, we'll move towards a world where where that gives us enough information, but uh, we're not there yet. and, And certainly, you know, not clear what's to come and whether that will be sufficient data for us to really uh, have a good sense of what's going on. She says the Broad Institute is paying for additional sequencing right now and working with Massachusetts to figure out what comes next. Her bigger concern is whether other places can identify variants early so we are not caught unprepared. Gabriella, are there other concerns you're hearing from the Massachusetts scientific community? Well, I spoke with Ofer Levy, who heads the Precision Vaccine Program at Boston Children's Hospital. He says there was a big investment in vaccine development under the Trump administration, and researchers like his team are still trying to develop new COVID vaccines that are cheaper and easier to store. And now that funding is uncertain. If that whole huge amount of money just completely dissipates and we say, mission accomplished, we're done here, Uh, We're in for a rude awakening in the years ahead. In the $10 billion deal that Senator struck yesterday, there is money for vaccine research. So a lot depends on what happens in Congress. And we know you'll be keeping an eye on it for us. Thank you very much, WBR's Gabriella Emanuel. Thanks. Thanks. Last week, Radio Diaries brought us the story of Sophia Brettel. Every day, I wake up, reach to my phone. And that split second before I look at my phone, I have a fear of not seeing a message from my mom. Sofia was born and raised in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, about 25 miles from the Russian border. Her mother still lived there. And I kept asking her, would you be willing to evacuate? There are trains. If I find someone for you to give you a ride, or would you go? And my mom told me right away that she's not going to leave because she doesn't want to leave her aunt. Sophia's aunt, Vanya, suffered an accident when she was 10 and became mentally disabled. Recently, she also became physically disabled. After Sophia's grandmother died, Sophia's mother became Vanya's caretaker. My aunt, she was barely walking, and she's helpless. She doesn't even understand that there's a war going on. This is where things got really difficult for Sofia. As the city became a frequent target of Russian bombing, Sofia got a call from a friend of her mother in Ukraine. And she said, listen, you need to convince your mom to leave because it's really dangerous here. And she doesn't want to go because of the aunt. So I called my mom and I said, like, you, you need to make a decision. I want you to leave because I want to have a mother. I said, I am sorry to put it this way, but is it me or the aunt? 
Sophia's mother finally left Ukraine last week and met Sophia in Israel. Aunt Vanya was evacuated from her apartment to a care facility in Kharkiv. I know that there's a lot of guilt and shame because of her aunt. I do not know if she will ever forgive herself, but this is the decisions that war puts people in front of. After we aired Sophia's story, we learned the sad news that Vanya Guseva died at her care facility this past weekend. She was 92 years old. You can hear the rest of Sophia's story on the Radio Diaries podcast. And for the latest on what's happening in, U- in Ukraine, wake up with Morning Edition tomorrow. Listen live on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Some nice evening sunshine in the Boston area, but clouds should collect overnight tonight and let loose with rain overnight. Lows about 43. Tomorrow, the showers should stick around breezy, only in the upper 40s. Thursday is still cloudy, could turn windy, and should stay wet, topping out at about 51 degrees. In the Boston area now, 54 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 630, and Marketplace is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by immersive Frida Kahlo, where visitors can discover the life, love, and art of the Mexican artist through a multimedia digital reimagining of her work set to a musical score. Now open at the Lighthouse Art Space at the Saunders Castle. Tickets available at immersive-frida.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com